Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Forum. Uh, today, we'll be discussing the urbanization of conflict. And I'm very happy to have with us uh, Ms. Aisha Malik, our very own editor at the DLP Forum. Um, Aisha, I wanted to begin um, by asking you about, you know, the phenomenon of urbanization. Um, we have seen, you know, that there's evidence to suggest that, you know, the, there is a greater shift towards uh, urban conflict taking place, uh, whereas urban areas were, you know, at least somewhat removed from from uh, you know the critical uh, mass of, of conflict taking place around the world, but we're seeing that change. Mm. So, Aisha, does greater urbanization help create the conditions for conflict, or do we see you know a, a genuine shift in conflict now taking place in urban areas, just um, as part of new conflict dynamics? Yeah, it's a bit interesting when we look at this as a phenomenon of urbanization of conflict, and it's kind of been touted as this new thing in contemporary warfare that war is now in cities. Um, and when you look at it historically, war has always been waged on cities. Mm. Like even in World War II, um, apart from Hiroshima, the worst actual conventional bombing was actually in T Tokyo, Dresden. The battle for Stalingrad was probably the worst battle in a city ever seen. Absolutely. Um, so war has always been waged where people live. <clears throat> And that means that it's been waged in urban areas. Um, and what we saw was a decline in that in the Cold War era. So mm -hmm. in Vietnam, Cambodia, we saw guerrilla fighters move to jungles, forests. And now we're seeing that return because urbanization has grown so much. And so now, um, you know, they're saying that cities are the jungles of the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and urbanization really from 2008, that was like the tipping point when you had a majority of people now living in cities. Mm -hmm. Currently, the number is 55% of the world. Okay, wow. And um, yeah, in 2030, that's going to go up to 60%. So one in three people are going to uh, be living in cities. Wow. And and the ICRC has said that about 50 million people are affected currently by armed conflict in cities. So we're seeing both. We're seeing a return to cities as a place of urban conflict. And we're also seeing a huge uh, rural to urban migration. Mm -hmm. And as people are moving from rural to urban areas, we're seeing that the insurgencies, the guerrilla fighters are kind of depending on them for information, intelligence, you know, hideouts for food, for sustenance. They're also moving with them to cities. Okay. Wow. Yeah. And especially when um, they're able to mobilize people on an ideological level, either through identity, through ethnicity, religion, in our in rural areas, they moved mm -hmm. with them to urban areas and you okay. see those ethnic cleavages also in cities. And that's kind of all becomes like the fodder for um, growing insurgency, revolutions, like the epicenters for revolutions have always been um, cities. Even mm -hmm. when we're looking at Afghanistan, the key important date was when the <coughs> Taliban took Kabul, yeah, right? Absolutely. Why was that such an important thing? It was an important feat because cities are the concentrations of state power. And so it's incredibly important who holds them and who doesn't. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, apart from cities being symbolic, um, you know, uh, manifestations of power, and uh, this is how guerrilla movements can, can demonstrate that they, they, they have power. I think also all the other elements that you've mentioned, specifically, you know, how cities are now um, these fund generating, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, places. So, so there's a lot of resources. Um, I think one really good example is Karachi. Yeah. Right. So we've seen yeah. that, you know, the, the, the terrorism or the militancy that we saw in Pakistan, whether it was in the, the erstwhile uh, Fata region or in Balochistan, um, Karachi was used traditionally, you know, a few decades ago as, as a place for R&R. Mm. Right, they would rest and relax, um, go to Karachi to, uh, to do that, and then they'd go back to the to the front. Right, right. Right. And then what we saw was Karachi becoming 
um, whether it was because of the kinetic operations taking place in those areas, mm-hmm. the people started shifting to Karachi and using it as a place for conducting their activities. Yeah. So, so um, whether it was terrorism, whether it was bombings, uh, we saw not only that taking place, but also, you know, using Karachi as a base to raise funds. Yeah. So things like kidnapping for ransom, we mm-hmm. saw that go up. Uh, extortion money, yeah. bata, which they call in Pakistan, um, that that skyrocketed. Um, we had targeted killings, um, assassinations, uh, bank robberies, um, and you know, of course, your your regular phone and and two uh, two wheeler snatching and all of that taking yeah. place, right? Yeah, I so, think so, which every resident has some story about. Exactly, yeah, yeah. especially especially in Karachi, and and so Karachi's dynamics become really interesting when you look at the history of Karachi. Mm. So we did a study, uh, you know, a few years back, looking at. That it's not really the, I mean, Karachi is the fifth or sixth largest city in the world, mm. uh, population-wise. But it's not really the size of the population that matters. It's the rapidity of growth. Yes. Like how quickly does the city grow, yep. right? Yeah. Karachi in 1947, when Pakistan gained independence, was just about 450,000 people. Mm. And now it is 22 million plus, it's, right? It's absolutely phenomenal. And when you look at it in terms of even... Um, a much closer history, 1998 to 2011, 115% growth of the wow. city. You added 11 million inhabitants to a city oh over the course of, you know, we're talking about 13 years. Wow. That's crazy growth. That's like burgeoning. Yeah. That's like a metropolis that has just like come up. Absolutely. And, yeah. and then when you see issues of, uh, I mean, you've already had, you know, issues of ineffectual government, mm. um, the inability to establish the of state. And then when you add, you know, just these numbers to yeah. it, it just exacerbates the entire yeah, situation. Yeah. And that is what then I think provides that fertile ground for recruitment mm. or for further crime to take place or organized crime to take place. And then, you know, really having the the, the city being taken over by these entities and allowing yeah. for that type of violence to take place. Yeah, I mean, there are an estimated 200 criminal gangs in Karachi. Wow. Um, and also you have these ideological extremist groups as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all competing over vo- votes, power, land, and, you know, providing then money for extortion and for protection. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, it's kind of it's kind of just this breeding ground for an insurgency for violence. Uh, and the question where IHL comes in is when does it reach that threshold as well? Because that's very blurred then when you have a sprawling metropolis and sprawling slums where you have yeah. so much violence. When does that move be beyond like an internal disturbance or something that actually would attract IHL? Absolutely. And I mean, you've had pitched battles in Karachi. I mean, mm. I wouldn't say that it's reached the stage of, say, it's an armed conflict or yeah. non-international armed conflict, but um, you've certainly seen uh, conflict dynamics in Karachi. Like it is uh, something of concern, Yeah, something that needs to be, you know, um, mechanisms need to be developed there to, to de-escalate in, the, in that sense. But we, what we've also seen more recently, uh, especially in Karachi, is the, the law enforcement, mm. um, you know, attitude that now, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. We need to bring back the city from the brink. Mm. And and so the, the Rangers operation that took place, you know, about five, six years ago, um, that uh, had a massive impact on and has significantly reduced a lot of the, the violence that is mm. that used to take place there. Um, but at the same time, we've seen uh, you know, violence come up in in other places, or or, or types of violence um, increase in in other places in Karachi. So um, you have a lot more vehicle snatching uh, right, right. That, that's taking place. So street mm. crimes uh, uh, have gone up, and uh, a number of those those things. But it's really interesting seeing how all of this plays out in, in Karachi, especially yeah. with the with the connection to Balochistan, um, with the connection to the the Pashtun connection, and and um, and all of that. So and seeing you know how this is a melting pot of so many different. Um, cultures uh, of Pakistan. It's really uh, magnificent to see how that plays into the conflict dynamics Mm. there. 
Yeah, and it's a bit uh, of what they call an onion conflict. Like there are many layers to the conflict. Yeah, you know, it's linguistic. It's all also ethnic. It's also tribal. It's also religious. Uh, there are so many facets to it. And how how then does the state try and consolidate its power in an area like that? Absolutely. So Aisha, um, some of the you know most uh, flagrant examples of urban violence uh, is you know we've seen in Syria. Yeah, we've seen you know cities being bombed, barrel bombing by mm. the Assad regime. um and, and and so much taking place over there um how are we seeing conflict change once mm. it gets into an urban uh, in environment um and and then the question of civilian protections comes about how do we protect civilians in this yeah. you know new battlefield that 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 emerges um, you know out of say more traditional battlefields rural battlefields Yeah yeah it it's very interesting to see how much civilian suffering there is in cities um you're right to mention Syria i mean Aleppo Mosul Raqqa Sanaa mm-hmm. all of these cities we've seen uh go through you know incredible indiscriminate bombing when you look at Aleppo um i think amnesty international did a study and they found that 83 barrel bombs were dropped in one month in My a city God. of that size with that you know that densely populated and the issue is that you have these urban trains which are incredibly densely populated so how do you use weapons there how do you ensure that civilians are protected uh there are accounts in Mosul when they were having the ninth nine month fight for the city mm-hmm. that you were having um insurgents fight each other um one was in the sitting room one was in the lounge wow. <laughs> one was in the kitchen and then there were civilians just going about their daily life on the floor above so it was literally de- uh, you know yeah tongue to cheek kind of yeah. like fighting with door to door combat yeah, yeah yeah exactly wow. and so you you have the issue of how do you distinguish between a civilian and a combatant when there's so much intermingling and it's mm-hmm. so difficult to uh figure out who's the fighter who's a civilian dpih how how do you target in that kind of a climate also you have the issue of the interconnectedness of services <laughs> so in rural areas if someone takes out you know your water supply there will be a village water well or something that you can use in cities everyone is entirely reliant on services so if you're taking out electricity it mean it has such a reverberating and knock on effect yeah, on yeah, other yeah. services and it can mean the difference between life and death for for civilians even if that could have been operating as a dual use object at the time and and also i mean if you take out say a, a water pump in in a rural setting yeah. the number of people affected are far fewer fewer than they would be in exactly, if you did yeah. in an urban setting right yeah, it's just the yeah. concentration of numbers there yeah. plays such a big difference uh, make makes such a dif- big difference there yeah and i remember reading something about the un delegation to iraq and they were going in 1991 so it's first gulf war and they were saying that um and i wrote this quote down because i just thought it, it really hit me at the time when i read it iraq has for some time to come been relegated to a pre-industrial age but with all the disabilities of post-industrial dependency on an intensive use of energy and technology. Wow. And so you have blomp, like bombed them back to the cave age time to the stone age. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. at the same time they can't you know continue because they have this post industrial dependence on everything. And I think for me that's the key thing about interconnectedness yeah. of services mm-hmm. because if you have electricity you can't if you don't have electricity you can't purify your water. Mm-hmm. You can't preserve your food. Um you can't pump away your sewage, you can't clean the streets, uh you can't irrigate your crops. So everything is so interconnected. Your life supporting needs are so, you know, hit, contingent on power supply, water supply, electricity supply. So when you take them out of a city, when you mm-hmm. destroy that in a city, uh what does that mean for civilian life? And it almost means that it's, you know, It, it cripples it. Beca- yeah. yeah, exactly. It becomes uninhabitable for for civilians. Wow. Um and similarly you then have um 
the blast radius of weapons, so explosive weapons, mm -hmm. uh, even if you have a blast radius of uh, a few hundred meters in a in a city, that means that, you know, you could be wiping out God knows what. And so civilians have been adapting to this in terms of, um, I remember reading in Syria, they were holding, they started to move their schools underground. In Ukraine wow. also, they were holding like very irregular classes. So they were holding classes in the evening for, for students because they were just like, you know, it's less likely to get bombed at that time. Mm -hmm. They're moving hospitals underground. <clears throat> so in those ways, um, civilians are adapting to urban conflict. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the military is adapting to urban conflict because they found that, um, there are so many signals going off in urban centers that it blocks their reconnaissance, their surveillance methods. And so like in Iraq, actually, the the U.S. military abandoned it altogether and they wow. started using humans again. They were just like, we need human information. So sending people in instead of, you know, sending in their um, whatever mm. technology that they use. And um they're, they're also adapting with the weaponry because you can't just drop a bomb now yeah, um, yeah, in an yeah. urban center. So uh, the U.S., uh, especially for Afghanistan and Pakistan, it came up with the Romeo Hellfire 2 missile. Okay. It's very interesting because usually if you're dropping on a building, a drone, it will... Um, it won't destroy the building, but it will just detonate on impact. Mm -hmm. So you don't know who you're getting. You don't know, even though you have so much more information about which floor they're, yeah. they're on. So the Hellfire 2 missile, the interesting thing about that is that it will go, it will penetrate the building maybe two floors down and then it will detonate. Wow. So it has a delayed view so that it can I detonate see, see, later. Um, and a lot of people argue that urban conflict, IHL itself, does, you know, make the military rely more on drones mm -hmm. and the proliferation of drones is largely due to IHL because you need precision targeting. And, you need all of that stuff. And, and another question I, I would have here is that you know, with the urbanization of, of conflict, and, and you mentioned this uh, very rightly, that, you know, accuracy becomes a, a far more important thing, yeah. right? Because you're in such compact uh, areas and so so densely populated areas. Is it that, you know, IHL can only be complied with by richer, bigger forces yeah. um, who have the, you know, specialized weaponry or, or you know, in situations of asymmetric warfare, yeah. where you have guerrilla groups or militants or, or ISIS, for example, that we saw, mm. they won't have the sophisticated weapons that we're talking about yeah. here. Can they abide by IHL? Can, can IHL operate, yeah. uh, you know, within yeah. an urban setting like that? Yeah, it becomes incredibly <clears throat> difficult, especially when you look at... Um, in many ways, uh, superior military forces will yeah. still have the upper ground, even though they're, you know, the the weapons that they're allowed to use, everything in their military arsenal, they won't be allowed to use mm -hmm. in, in an urban terrain. But at the same time, the way that non-state armed groups who are especially, who, you know, are especially weaker than these military forces, they will attempt to have these conflicts more in urban terrain because what favors them is a protracted and long conflict. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and of course, yeah. the human shields. Yes, exactly. So also they will use their knowledge of this, especially these falling slums okay, that the okay, militaries, okay. Of, especially foreign militaries, won't be aware of. Mm -hmm. They'll use their knowledge of like these alleyways and all of that kind of stuff to, to, to you know, have some kind of high ground. But equally, yeah, th there is a huge issue, especially we saw this with the Hamas, about yeah. uh, the use of human shields and um, the fact that the population becomes a third party player to the conflict yeah, because yeah, yeah. they're both sides are trying to win the heart and minds of the people. And so they're kind of either being protected or hurt on purpose mm -hmm. by either side. And so there were accounts um, in Yemen that they would drop pamphlets to abide by the precautionary principle and say, get out of this area, we're going to bomb it. 
if you even picked up one of those, you could be killed by an ISIS sniper fire. Wow. Uh, I think this is in Syria. So you're you're just like, okay, the, the civilian protect population kind of fe feels it from both sides. Mm -hmm. And similarly with the human shields argument, um, Israel has said that if we're going to drop pamphlets mm -hmm. and then humans are still not going to get out of the way, um, what that means is that they are combatants and they're targetable. And wow. if that's not supported that's, that's by international law, that's, <laughs> that's a, a stretch, huge stretch. Yeah. yeah, that's not supported by international law at all. But that does come into this play of asymmetric warfare in urban conflicts, especially because states are like, how can we ensure that civilian life is protected? It's hmm. very hard to abide by a distinction or proportionality or precautionary principle. And so to do that, they're kind of looking for loopholes and the human shields caveat is one of them. They're saying we shouldn't include them in the proportionality calculation. We shouldn't include them. We, we sh They should be targetable if we've given them every opportunity to leave. Yeah, absolutely. Gaza is an open air prison. So how much you can argue that, you know, the civilians are there by choices. Again, no, huge uh, stretch. And, and I think, you know, your discussion really goes to the fact that, you know, there are limitations on the law. There's, a, there's yeah. only so much that the law can, can you know, limit or restrict uh, the parties to a conflict. And in the end, you are going to see atrocities taking place on, on, on both sides, especially when the, when, when you know, the, the battlefield is an urban battlefield. Yeah. Um, so I just think it just exacerbates all the all the bad things, yeah, uh, all, all yeah, the definitely. you know negative elements uh, on that front. Aisha, I just wanted to end on wh where you see um, you know conflict uh, trends developing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there's going to be a continued um, shift in in conflict moving to urban uh, centers, or do you think that this is just you know something temporary temporary that we're seeing now? Uh, because of the particular dynamics of, of this time that we're in. Mm. And so there's kind of a utopian versus a dystopian view of this. So the utopian people argue that, you know, as people move to cities, urbanization is actually a very good thing because it reduces conflict because you have more and more opportunities for people. Their needs are more met. It's easier to meet their needs mm -hmm. also because, you know, you have consolidated control. Um, and so it leads to economic growth. I mean, most of the GDP in the world is generated in cities. Yes, um, but secondly, a lot of people argue that there's poor governance, inadequate resources, you're going to get more insurgency. And and they argue that it's going to lead to these feral cities where mm. nobody has any control. It's complete lawlessness. And Gotham. In many, yeah, <laughs> in many areas. Um, and I think that the more we're seeing um, conflict spread to urban areas, and I think the the more there are very lucrative targets, the, the possibility for media attention, international exposure, which is yeah. what non-state groups really want. Um, I think the you're going to get more and more um, conflict in cities. And so I think I'm kind of more on the side of the dystopian uh, <laughs> view of the future. And I think that that's why it's going to be even more important to ensure that civilians are protected at a time like that. And, and I know I said this was the last question, but but just, just one thing. Do you think that we can develop IHL to, to look at this new reality? Do, do you think there's scope for... Um, for at least countries to come together and 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 look at you know some solutions to this because we do see that this is concentrated in certain areas we don't yeah. see the developing world uh sorry so the developed world uh suffering from you know the types of things that we're seeing in Syria or, yeah. or in Yemen or in, uh, in in other places do you think that you know that there is enough appetite to, to develop specific rules perhaps for urban conflict I think so because I think I think the reaction to urban conflict is so much uh, more visceral than yeah. I think it happening in a rural area where you don't really relate to the lives of people who live in the countryside mm -hmm. and you don't really understand what's going on. Uh, whereas anything that happens in a, in a city, you have so much international media attention. 
like we do know a lot about what's happening in Aleppo. We know a lot about <coughs> what's happening in Mosul. And so for that reason, I feel like there there should be an appetite for the international community to come together and be like, how do we more adequately protect civilians? And I, I worry that that will just be focused on building weaponry, which is more precise, mm. rather than, you know, on um, <coughs> ensuring <coughs> ensuring that we have a better protection in terms of, you know, defining between what's a civilian DPIH and what isn't, and defining what would be a disproportionate attack. Thank you, Aisha. That was really helpful. Thank you.